Hi there. Welcome to yet another episode of The Fourth Generation, a podcast that aims to equip you with the right ideological tools to understand politics on the African continent. My name is Olemo Gordon-Brand. I'm your host, and today I'm joined by two very special friends of mine, Pan-Africanists and revolutionaries, Marwan Elbaroy from the Kingdom of Morocco and Siabonga Michelle Adebe from South Africa. Today, as part of our book club, we are going to be discussing the Green Book by Kano Muama Al-Gaddafi. He's uh, a brother leader, as he used to call himself, brother leader Kano Muama Al-Gaddafi. So the book club is where we actually just together read a book um, over a period of one week or so, and then come together and unpack what the main ideas of that book are and how we can apply that to actually analyze the nature of our politics today. So the title of the book is The Green Book. Uh, by brother leader Kano Muama al-Gaddafi, former president of Libya. He was a revolutionary, uh, an inspiration for young people because he launched the Libyan revolution at quite a young age. He was a pan-Africanist, he was a political theorist, and he was assassinated by the Libyans with the help of the US and NATO forces in 2011. A good case study um, to actually follow. So we can discuss what the impact of his death has been for Libya in a later episode, but today we are going to just be talking about the Green Book, where he outlines his vision for Libya, for Africa, and the world. Uh, The book is very deep, very philosophical, and so we will try and, as we discuss, relate the concepts that are there to the status quo and to Africa and to the world. The three of us have spent the past week reading the book, and we'll be discussing different sections of the book. In the book, Gaddafi propounds what he calls a third universal theory, and he expounds this in three parts. The first one that uh, Michel is going to take us through is called the political basis of the third universal theory. And here he proposes the solution of the authority of the people as a solution to what he calls the problem of democracy. The second bit that I'm going to take you through is the economic basis of the third universal theory. Uh, here I present a solution that is socialism as a solution to the question of wealth acquisition and distribution in society. The third section that uh, Marwan is going to take us through is a, a social basis for the third universal theory. Without further ado, I'd just like to uh, invite Sia to take us through the first section of the book. So um, thank you, Alama, just on that point. I think that it's important to realize that when introducing what Gaddafi is talking about, he first says um, he interprets life as it erupts from the heart of the tormented, the oppressed, the deprived, and the grief-stricken. So I think that sort of gives us an idea um, as he's going to talk about the solution of the problem of democracy. I think it gives us an idea. It gives us his positionality on who is he speaking to, where is he speaking from, and to whom is he addressing, and um, these realities, who, like, which reality, are, they, are these the realities of the bourgeois, the realities of the proletariat, the realities of who exactly is he addressing this to? And he says that he interprets life as it erupts from the heart of the tormented, the oppressed, the deprived, and the grief-stricken. And as I'm going to dive into sort of the political base that he takes us through, it's important that I sort of take out that he analyzes the solution to the problem of democracy. And he's going to analyze this within four four shams of democracy, or as he calls it. And these are false democracies or ideals or or almost like facades that are created um, as 
democracy but they are actually not and then immediately after we're going to go through um, the popular congress and the people's committees then we're going to go into law and the and supervision as a way of organizing um, the political base in, in, in the green book and right as I'm going to go into this he, he introduces the problem of democracy as saying that the instrument of governance is a prime political problem which faces communities. And he says all political systems in the world today are a product of the struggle for power between instruments of governing. And he analyzes what we now believe to be a, a widely accepted system of democracy and saying that there is something fundamentally wrong with democracy. And it is the fact that democracy, it is representation in lieu of the people. It represents people. But he says democracy in its purest form should be about the people, should be the people representing themselves and not having a few or a selected representing the people. Um, he first tackles uh, the parliament and he talks about the parliament and he says the parliament that is now viewed as the representation or the representatives of the people. He says parliament is a, is a misrepresentation of the people and its parliamentary governments, they are misleading solutions to the problem of democracy. He says whenever you are going to choose a select few group of people, put them in positions of power and have them take decisions on behalf of the people, it, it, it sort of defeats the purpose of democracy because people People should be leading themselves. People should take decisions for themselves and not have someone who is taking decisions on behalf of people. And he's also saying that the problem with parliament and sort of the MP system, the parliamentary member system, is that it alienates the MPs from the people that they are supposedly representing. And he talks about how they then get there. They take decisions that the people don't even want. And I think we've seen this in many instances. For example, in South Africa, um, with the previous president, um, Mr. Jacob Zuma, you were, the, the people did not want him as president anymore. But because now that these parliamentary systems have alienated parliamentary members from the situation on the ground, from the voices of the people that elected them, they now chose to keep the person in power, whereas there were revolutionary conditions of the, on the ground where people no longer wanted um, no longer wanted this person in power. And then it sort of makes you think about if then you are electing people to represent you and they lose touch with the people that they're representing, how much of a democracy is that and how effective is a parliament or a parliamentary system as an instrument of governance and as an instrument of democracy? And I think that in many other instances, you even see with a lot of thinkers on the continent like Ngugi Wathiongo, who criticizes um, a lot of political systems on the continent, particularly in Kenya, but he mostly uses literary work to actually talk about that. He talks about, in his book, Petals of Blood, he talks about an, an MP, a fictional MP called Nderi Wariera. And basically, he's elected. He moved to Nairobi. He gets into this centralized system of power, whereas his constituents is in the village. His, constitu his constituents is in the rural um, areas. And these people go through a, a drought. This MP doesn't know that his, uh, his, con his constituents are going through a drought. The constituents even come to him and say, hey, we're going through a drought. This man thinks it's some political fabricated scheme to bring him down. So these people that you elect to represent you end up being politicians and are being um, 
they end up playing a political game and not fulfilling the purpose of which they've been um, elected to fulfill, which is to represent people. And in many other ways, the parliamentary system or the representative system, it sabotages the power of the people. Because in a true democracy, it is the people who have the power. Now, when you elect someone to represent you, you transfer the people's power into one person. And that person sort of takes the decision, they sabotage the power and the voices of the people. And I think um, the last part that he ends up saying about this is, um, I quote from the book, he says, representation is flawed. He said, such systems fool and victimize people and they exploit people into political bodies. And I think that it's sort of a, a really powerful statement around how flawed this representative system that is widely accepted in the world actually is and how it does not cater to the needs of the people. Secondly, he talks about um, party, the party. And I think he makes a very bold statement and says, the party is the contemporary dictatorship. It exercises a sham democracy where it monopolizes and puts, and it monopolizes democratic institutions. And I find this quite interesting because he compares it to tribal systems and sectarial systems. And he says, there's no difference between these. You have a group of people who may not be blood related, but there's something bigger that is connecting them, which is maybe political ideology. It might be party allegiance. And it sort of creates this tribe or this inner circle of people that monopolize the power, that distribute the power within themselves. So they end up having a group of people that take a decision on behalf of other people. And yet again, he says that anything similar to that is not a democracy because a democracy is when people take decisions for themselves, when people lead themselves, and not when you have people who think or assume that this is what is good for people and then they take decisions on that. And I think we've seen this a lot on the continent. I mean, I think one good example would be um, Mabuti Seseko's Zaire, um, Zaire state and where he sort of created a party to be this political machine that was driving change that was driving change and actually the main central command of the state he basically had a a dictatorship of the party anybody within the party um had a, had power anybody within the party could get away with certain things in the society he di- he did away with parliamentary systems did away almost with the judiciary um and enacted the party as the main source of governance and main instrument of governance within um, the Zaire state. And of course, we know the repercussions of that. But primarily, when you have a group of people unified, taking decisions on behalf of others, that is representation in lieu of the people. And it is not representation by the people. And Gaddafi says, the authority should be with the people and not given to parties. And then after that, he takes us to um, um, a sort of similar to um, the parliament and similar to the party. He takes us to um, class. And I think he takes, uh, uh, he draws parallels with um, Karl Marx's beliefs around a class system. And he talks about how a class system is very similar to the party system. And he says, they emerge because of beliefs, standard of living, culture, locality, and they create a common outlook by which they achieve a common end. And therefore, and you would know that how Karl Marx defines the state, he defines the state as a tool of the bourgeois. And actually with Gaddafi, he actually says that you find a class that then monopolizes the state, uses the state, and 
furthers its common agenda with the state. And therefore, yet again, we come back to the same point where the class is taking decisions on behalf of the people and not people taking decisions for themselves. And he says, under true democracy, I quote, there is no excuse for one class crushing another. And therefore, we've seen it. We see it a lot in South Africa where you can have big mining goons get away with crushing um, proletariats. You, you see it in many Afri- African countries where you have a specific class get away with crushing another, yet such states are called democracies, yet such states um, are called um, progressive democracies and contemporary um contemporary political systems, but overall it takes us to the same point of saying, how much of a democracy is a class system where you have a bourgeois monopolizing the power of the state, using the state to further its common interests, where you have about 50% of the people, or even greater, on the ground and having their, having their needs and necessities not catered to by the state. And um, just on that point, he also takes us into plebiscites. And he makes a very broad statement and he says, plebiscites are a fraud. He says, when you are presented with a choice and we say, um, would you like to take a certain decision? He said, you, you can't really say people can say yes or no about their lives. The very fact that you only have two words, you either have a yes or a no. When the state gives you a law and says, this is the law that we want to pass, and you either say a yes or a no, he says that in and itself is not representative democracy because that law itself, the people were not involved in sort of crafting it. They are only involved in perhaps passing it or not passing it. And to an extent, that is a facade because the state or whoever is up, they will have the power to actually pass a specific law regardless of people saying yes or no. And he says that any system, either than the popular Congress, cannot be a true democracy. And it does not cater to the needs of the people. And um, after sort of exhausting um, these four systems of the parliament, the party, the class, and plebiscite, he then takes us to what he believes is sort of the real solution and what should be an instrument of governance. And it is overall summarized by the fact that people should be the instrument of governance. Um, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't be having systems that are instruments of governance. We shouldn't be having an administrative or an executive system, but people themselves should be the main instrument of governance. And we've heard um, many sentiments, even when Lenin saying the people shall govern. We say it's the democracy of the people, by the people, for the people. And he says that a lot of, a lot of, a lot of systems sort of say this, but they are not authentically for the people, by the people. And what he calls the, the People's Congress or the Popular Congress and People's Committee are what is actually the true um, state of the people, by the people, for the people, with the people. And he basically says that um, in order to sort of create this solution to the problem of democracy, people should be divided into popular congresses. And these congresses should be split to people's professions, people's function in society. And this goes back to many other parallels that um, that many post-colonial thinkers such as Julius Nyerere, Thomas Sankara have spoken about, about individuals' function in society and contributing to their society according to their function. And he talks about um, people should be divided into popular congresses. That is at the very, very basis. And within those congresses, they should elect a secretariat. This secretariat elected by the people then joins into 
another congress which is the which is another congress which is um the secretariat popular congress and then these people do away with an administrative um with an administrative system where you choose and they select few and then they choose who's the minister of finance the minister of this the minister of that and you actually have the people replace that and they create the administrative popular congress and this means that all public utilities are run and driven by the people and the people within their committees and congresses sort of drive the policy and these forms of governance um they 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 then take a shape of what is called the general people's congress which is then um all these syndicates all these committees congresses unions then form a larger body which is the people which is the general people's congress and this is not sort of a this is not a, a, a parliament where you have everybody join in and you listen to a speaker or a secretariat and then you pass resolutions but it is actually the main body that is consti- that is constituted by committees and congresses of people who they themselves choose their laws choose their policies and not elect people to choose it for them so the people within those committees become an instrument of governance dictate their means of governance dictate the policies of the, of that country and basically dictate um the social and economic reforms that they want to see in their countries and they set their own laws and i think overall he talks about how then you can then organize society within those you can organize society within those committees where then people within the profession or the function of health form a people's committee of health people within the profession and function or even the desire to somehow or some day function um in education then form that committee and the people yet again as he keeps on reiterating in every chapter in the book the people are the instrument of governance they govern within those committees and the the, the the union of, of all these committees sort of form a state where everybody decides what they want in the government and everybody decides how they govern their own state and they are not decided for and it is a representation it was a representation not in view of the people but um by the people and i think overall towards the end he then talks about law and supervision and saying then a lot of times when a lot of times when people talk about this pure form of democracy they often label it as a utopian dream and saying well this is not going to work because how do you how do you get people to supervise you need someone who's at the top to actually look through things and make sure that things work but it, but when Gaddafi goes into this he talks about how if people set their own laws they need no supervision because they are they are the they are the instrument of governance they keep themselves accountable so they set a law for themselves and they keep them themselves accountable they are not being kept accountable to a law or to a standard or to a policy that was imposed on them and he also talks about um actually he 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 goes into law and he talks about how the current laws that we have are not actually laws he says one they are subject to change of the instrument of government of governance changes for example on the south african if um the eff comes to power it's more likely that a lot of the laws will change if the democratic alliance comes into power more likely that a lot of the laws will change but gaddafi says that is not what law is law should be based off of natural law 
something that cannot change, something that cannot be manipulated by um, the, the, the change in instruments of power or the change in power. And he says the people, they communally, within their different contexts, within their different cultural tribal um, societal um, context then decide what their natural law is and then they decide how as a country they keep themselves accountable and they keep themselves going within um, this law so I think just overall and in, in summary we really see that if we delve deep into questioning a lot of the beliefs that we have around around democracy questioning if these ideals or these symbols of democracy such as parliament and the party and class and plebiscites if they are truly democracies and i think he's one of the kind there aren't a lot of thinkers um in modern academia who actually challenge the concept of democracy and actually stretch it and actually find a solution where everyone is an instrument of governance and when the people actually govern the people actually have a say and then and are not necessarily represented by a select few and i think that when olama will go into the economics we'll perhaps see bits and pieces of that um transcending into how does how how are people benefited um and how are people driving society as the instrument of governance within their various political um their political structures Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Sia, for taking us through the first section of the book. Um, my work will be to continue along the same lines, looking at how people's congresses and uh, all of that can be implemented, but also looking at the economic basis for the third universal theory. So what I'll begin from is, is, is a very simple place, and that is the problem, what Gaddafi sees as the problem of work and wages, the problem of the existence of wage workers, the problem of the existence of exploitation within the system within, within which we are surviving. Gaddafi starts by acknowledging something that in the world over we have modern labor laws that overall the workers conditions in the world have improved over the course of history that workers nowadays can work fixed working hours that um, there is wages that are provided for additional work people can go and leave maybe maternity leave and the likes uh, people have a minimum wage I think recently I was reading in the Mail and Guardian and South Africa next year workers in South Africa can now earn 20, around 21.59 rand per hour and so there's an increase in the minimum wage there's also attempts to share the profits of production with the different workers within the different systems and there's also more participation of the workers in the administration there's also guaranteed social security so if you're ugandan you probably know the national social security fund right a, a place where workers can deposit a bit of their wages that they can actually then exploit when they're done with um when they're in retirement. And also there is outlawing of arbitrary dismissal compared to, for example, feudal societies where someone could easily dismiss you from work for what you're doing. Actually, nowadays there's a, a, a better guarantee that you'll actually survive in your job um, the next day. But Gaddafi mentioned something. He says, despite all these attempts to actually um, change the ownership of production, the fundamental problem has not been solved. And what's the fundamental problem? The fundamental problem is production. The fundamental problem is exploitation. The fundamental problem is that as long as a wage worker exists, then the society is not a free one. And we'll delve into this idea of freedom much later on. And we'll also talk about like what does it actually mean to be free? What does economic freedom look like? Um, what... 
uh, makes man free and how can that be achieved through the so- solution that he propounds, the solution of a socialist society. So Gaddafi says that a wage worker is a slave to the person who hires him. So if you are working for a wage, it means you are selling your labor. It means you're not in ownership of the means of production. And because you do not own the means of production, the only thing that you have, as Karl Marx would call it, is your labor power, right? And the only way that in which you can earn is actually by selling that labor and you sell that labor for a wage. Now, the only problem with that is that then you are not getting a share in your own production, that you are the real producer, but then you are not getting a share in what you are producing. And Gaddafi gives us a fundamental principle. He says two things. That one, the sound rule is he who produces is the one who consumes. So you should be able to consume what you produce. And the second thing he says is that wage workers are a type of slave, however improved their wages may be. So as long as you are working for a wage, you are a slave because you are not determining how you benefit from your own production and you do not have an eco share in your own production. Gaddafi asks, he answers a very good question. He says, why are, we, why are workers given wages? So where, where is this um, issue of wage workers coming from? And he says, it's because they carry out a production process for the benefit of others who can hire them to produce a certain product. Right? And the problem with this is that uh, they have not consumed their own production, but they are obliged to surrender it for a wage. So you can look at, for example, iPhone producers in Taiwan. They, not, they may not necessarily be able to afford the iPhones that are producing. So they do not have an eco share in their own production. Look at the people, the, the workers in Indonesia who produce sneakers for Nike. Or, or, or maybe people who produce cars for Ford in South Africa. They may not necessarily be able to afford these cars. And yet, in an hour, they make so many cars. And yet, they cannot partake in this production. So this is the problem that he identifies. The problem of wage workers and the problem of workers being a slave because of this type of relationship. And he says that regardless of the type of ownership, whether these factories, whether these means of production are owned by the state or by the public or whether they're owned by private workers, the problem is still the same. You are still a slave, but only that you're a slave to different people. Now, you can be a slave to the public or you can be a slave um, to a private owner who will seek to extract um, surplus and profit out of you. right? And so he says that... The authority that monopolizes ownership is the authority of all the people that everyone should be able to through uh, the popular congresses that Sia mentioned, through the people's committees and through professional syndicates, everyone should be able to actually have the ownership of production. So what solution does Gaddafi identify? Gaddafi identifies the ultimate solution as being able, we should abolish the wage system, we should emancipate man from this bondage of, of, of wage slavery, as Karl Marx calls it, and we should revert to what he calls the natural law. So the natural law is very interesting because um, Gaddafi thinks that there was a natural, and, and Sia mentioned this at the start, that there's a natural law in place, that before the emergence of social classes, before the emergency of the state and forms of government to actually oversee and arbitrate in production, there was a natural law that was in place. And Gaddafi says that the most way of creating an equitable society is actually to revert back to this natural law. And so he talks about the natural rule of equality. What's the natural rule of equality? That each factor of production should have an eco share in their own production. 
That's right, that I shouldn't be producing for a factory owner who does not know what it takes to produce a car and yet he's taking all the profit and I can barely afford to buy that car. Or I'm producing for some a factory that produces bread and yet I cannot afford to put bread or on, 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 on the table for my family. So this is essentially um, the, the, uh, the, the problem that we are, we are trying to solve. And so he talks of the natural law and he says that the natural law is what leads to what he calls natural socialism. So he thinks that before the emergence of classes, before feudalism, before capitalism, before slavery, uh, in the existence of communalistic societies, that was actually uh, what he calls natural socialism, based on equality of economic factors of production. Right, and so we're just going to go into a bit of history uh, and trace where these ideas come from. So, what are the essentials of production from economics? The essentials of production are raw materials, an instrument of production, and the producer. So, if you're to put it into this current context, you, for example, have um, you have raw materials. For example, you have gold, right? You have gold, and then you have an instrument of production that is a factory, and then you have now the producers who have to manipulate these instruments of production to actually bring out the final product. And what does Gaddafi say? That what should happen according to a natural law is that there should be an equality um, in the right to what is produced. That each factor must have an eco share in what is produced. That each factor, the raw material and the instrument of production and the producer should actually have an eco right in what is produced. And so when we, when we trace this historically, when we try to use historical uh, materialism to actually trace this, you look at um, man, manual production, the days when we used to produce manually with our own hands. So there were only two, there were only two essentials of production there. There was man who was the, who, who was the instrument of production himself and then there was um there were the animals that we are hunting now these are sort of the producers and so what he says in such a society is we're supposed to have a 50 50 sharing right a 50 50 sharing between the man and a 50 50 sharing between what is actually being um produced then you then we had a transition of society to using animals um during the time when we actually started now taming animals and using them for our production so we had horses we had donkeys and what, what does he say um the horses here now have become the instrument of production so now we are seeing three factors and now with an instrument of production there should be a sharing of um of, of the there should be a sharing of production of, of what is produced in three parts right so a third going to the man who is now the producer going to the animal that is now the instrument of production and lastly now going to um uh, the, the raw material which is what you are using to actually facilitate the production and so we see now with the emergence of the industrial establishment that uh, the raw material now comes into play. And now we have raw materials, we have my machines, as I said, and workers. And so the production is the outcome of the workers' use of machines in the factory to manufacture raw materials. So this is very important because we need to understand how production actually works. That we have three factors. We have the raw materials, the machines, and the workers. And production is the outcome of the workers using these machines um, in the factory, factory to manipulate um, the raw materials that are available in order to, to, to actually deliver on the production that is needed. And so Gaddafi says that regardless of the quantitative and the qualitative changes that have actually happened as far as uh, improvement, sophistication of production as, is concerned throughout history, the essential thing has not changed, that each factor 
the role of each factor in production has not changed. He says, so if you take away the raw materials, for example, the factory cannot operate. If you take away the factory, for example, you'll have nothing to use to manipulate the raw materials. And if you remove the producers, who are the most important people, if you're adopting a humanistic stance to viewing the world, then the factory comes to a halt. So the worker is still the most important thing. And Gaddafi argues that then the right of the worker to, 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 to ownership, the right of the worker to to, to, to the spoils of production or to the products of production should actually be equal, that no one should be in need, that regardless of, of, of how advanced society is, the, the, the work, a worker should be entitled to what he's producing. A worker should be able to afford what he is uh, essentially producing. And this is the solution that he presents, a reversion, a reversion, um, a reversion to the natural law, that everyone should have an equal share. Of, 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 of the factors of production. Then he also talks about a bit of the wealth uh, the, the, the wealth gap, that the problem when you have social classes and the problem when you have certain people who own the means of production and others who don't, is that you'll have exploitation and he says exploitation is a deviation from the natural law, right? Because, for example, you have individuals who possess so much of the general wealth that we're going to look into later on um, that this general wealth is meant to be with other people in society but because other people are actually possess so much of this wealth then others are deprived and so there's exploitation and I think here we can think of so many billionaires in the world and owners of large corporations who are able to manipulate a lot of profit just because of their their skills and talent. In the second section that we're going into we're going to look at um, what it actually means to be free. What is freedom and particularly what is economic freedom. And uh, Gaddafi mentioned something very important. He opens by saying, a person in need is a slave indeed. Right? A person in need is a slave indeed. So he says, man's freedom is lacking if somebody else controls what you need. And here I want us to look at Africa and the need for capital. That our freedom is lacking if someone else controls what we need. And here we need capital as Africans. Right from independence, we are in the dilemma of we want to develop, we want to grow our infrastructure, but we lack capital. And so we became uh, people in need. And because we were in need, we lacked freedom because we were being controlled by the West and the global North from which we were sourcing most of the aid that we had. So Gaddafi says that man's needs um, should actually be owned by man. That need causes exploitation. That So therefore need in itself is an intrinsic problem if you do not uh, have ownership and you're not able to provide for your own need. So under man's needs, Gaddafi mentions a few needs. He talks about the need for a house. And he says this is a basic need for any individual and family. And therefore, if it's a basic need, it should not be owned by other people, right? That a man, that if you live in another person's house, whether you pay rent for it or not, you have no freedom. And we shall look at the social anxiety that is associated with some of these needs. So he says that all attempts to solve the problems of housing in the world, for example, decreasing rent, um, uh, affordable, low-cost housing, he says that all of these are not actually solutions because they don't aim at enabling everyone to own their own home. And for man to be truly free, he should be able to own his own home. So if you build a house, for example, for rent, you are attempting to control other people, in this case, your tenants. You're attempting to control them because they'll always be obliged to answer to you anytime you can kick them out of the house. So they're not actually free. The second, so he says that in a socialist society, which in this case is a solution, no one, including the society itself, is allowed to have control over another man's needs. 
that every man should have control over his own needs. The second need he talks about is income. That income is an imperative need for any man. And uh, income should never be in the form of a wage or charity. Because this still leaves you controlled by another person. You do not have true freedom if you are being given charitable donations. Let's look at Africa and, and, and how, for the most part, we've become a charity case for people who have capital and money, right? So we are never truly free because we, we cannot determine the rate at which this charity comes and uh, uh, the, the rate at which um, some of these things are done. So he talks about something that's very important for us to understand the social basis, um, sorry, the economic basis for the third universal theory, that in a socialist society, there are no wage workers, right? There are only partners. There are no wage workers. Everyone is a partner in production. The other need that he talks about is the vehicle. That a vehicle, be it a motorcycle or anything, a, a, um, a, an automobile, is a necessity for both the individual and the family. And your vehicle should not be owned by other people because it's something that you need to move from one place to another. right? And he says that in a socialist society, no man or any authority can possess private, individ- private vehicles for the purpose of hiring them out. For this is the domination of the needs of others. So still the idea of you controlling your needs. The second thing after needs, he talks about land. That land is no one's property. That everyone has the right to use land to benefit from it, either by working, by farming, or by pasturing. So if the possession of if the private possession of land is allowed, only those who are living in it then can have a share in it. So think about those people who have no possibility of ever owning land. Maybe because they were born late, maybe because their ancestors owned whole districts, right? So they have large chunks of land that they probably never use. But there are people who are actually farmers, there are people who need this land to survive. So he says that we should actually all be entitled to the land. Uh, I'm thinking about, for example, there are power land clashes in Uganda and um, some of these things. So he says that the problem with private ownership is that with time, the users change in profession. For example, someone will stop, will stop being a farmer and they'll become, for example, a diplomat or they'll start working in public service. So they'll not need that land as much as other people. So people change in profession, in capacity, and in that presence. And so he says the purpose of the new socialist society is to create a society which is happy because it is free. And this is very important, that freedom and happiness are interlinked, right? That uh, we can only achieve this freedom by satisfying man's material and spiritual needs and the liberation of those needs from outside domination and control, that you can only be free if actually your material and spiritual needs are provided for and these needs are not controlled by other people. So now then we look at production in a socialist society that is the solution to to, to the problem that Gaddafi has um, so rightly um, diagnosed in this case. He says that in production in society, a man work in a socialist society, man works for himself to guarantee his material needs. Or he works for a socialist corporation as a partner or performs public service to society which provides his material needs. The emphasis here is that the man should be able to produce what is just sufficient to be able to sachet his own material needs. That right? That what you're producing, you either work for yourself, either you work, or you work for a socialist corporation in, as a partner, not as a as as a, as a, a wage uh, as a uh, as a worker who is seeking a wage, or you perform public service to the society which actually provides your material needs. So he says 
Economic activity is only productive activity if it satisfies people's material needs. So if you look at uh, the opposite of that in, for example, capitalists or feudal societies that uh, production is unproductive if it seeks profit and it seeks to serve a surplus. And so here we see some of the pitfalls of capitalism. As Marx said, that we produce what we don't need, right? And what we need, we can't afford. So people need food, but they can't afford food. And yet we're producing so many Lamborghinis more than people can actually ride them. Yeah, uh, and, and we're doing all these ridiculous uh, um, trips to space, spending trillions of dollars, um, and yet there are people who are actually starving on, on, on Earth. So he says that the problem with capitalism um, is actually primitive accumulation and over-accumulation of wealth at the expense of people who need it. So Gaddafi says no individual should acquire more wealth than is enough to satisfy his own material needs because the excess amount then belongs to other people. So if you are holding wealth, for example, you're doing this at the expense of other people. So one should only save from his needs and from his own production, but not from others' other, others' efforts. So if you produce something of your own, right, um, and then you want to save it, there's no pro- uh, problem with that, as long as it's not being done in uh, using the, 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 the sweat and, and the, the brow and sweat of other people. So then, then he brings us, he takes us into the next part, which is very important, that whoever works for his own material needs or is a partner in production, as is the case in a socialist society, has an incentive to work. So if you're working for yourself, for your own material needs, or you're working as a partner in production in a socialist corporation, you have an incentive to work. But if you're working for a wage, then you do not have an incentive to work, right? And work takes two forms. It can be either in the form of services or production, or that's physical production in itself. And he says that this type of work is continually deteriorating because it rests on the shoulders of wage workers and low, uh, and, and because they're lowly motivated. And this is why I, I slightly disagree with Gaddafi because I think that overall, in the world today, we've managed to have an increase in worker productivity. Right, and I think this is where maybe there was a flaw in his prediction. Because overall, we've managed to have an increase. Much as workers may not be very motivated, and I think the motivation for workers is work for wage is actually survival. So wage workers are motivated by survival, and we've seen that capitalism has managed to squeeze them so hard that productivity has increased. But we'll continue with this illustration. He gives an illustration of four people. He says, one, you have a worker who is working uh, who is producing 10 apples a day, he's doing it for society, and he's paid one apple, and this one apple satisfies his needs. Then you have a second worker who is producing 10 apples a day, he's doing it for the society, and he's paid one apple at the end of the day, but this one apple is not enough to actually satisfy his needs. Then he talks about the third worker who actually produces 10 apples, but he's producing these 10 apples for another person. He's not producing it for himself or society. He's producing it for another person. And he expects to be compensated by a wage that is less than the price of one apple. And this is capitalism at its best, right? You're producing a, um, 100 cars in a day, right? And you, you're producing this car not for yourself but for another person. And the wage that you're being paid is actually less than the price of one car. Right, and so this is the problem that he identifies. Um, then the fourth example he gave was a worker who produces 10 apples but for himself. And so you see that um, the, the interesting conclusions he makes is that the first worker who produces 10 apples for society and is paid one and is satisfied uh, is actually very psychologically apathetic. 
right? Because he will not increase his production because he has enough. The one apple is enough for him. Then the second worker who produces 10 apples to society and is paid one, which is not enough for him, he's, he has no incentive to produce more because he's not deriving satisfaction from his needs, right? His needs are not being satisfied. Then the, work, the third worker, whom we've said is in a capitalist state as such, uh, he, he, he works not to produce, not to increase production, but he's working for a wage. But since his wages do not satisfy, he has two options. Either he will search for another master to whom he can uh, sell his labor, or he will continue to work for the same for the same master just to survive. And here we see the problem with wages, that workers are not in control. They do not have freedom, right? Freedom is a foreign concept because they have to sell their labor. They have to work for someone else in order to survive. Then the fourth worker who actually produces 10 apples for himself is in the new socialist society. He produces with without apathy, he produces without coercion, and he produces just enough to be able to fulfill his needs. And he says that in a general consensus, all types of societies, capitalist or otherwise, production is for survival. That everyone is seeking for their material needs to actually be fulfilled. People are looking for clothes, people are looking for things that will actually what? Satisfy them. And he says that in a capitalist society, production accumulates and expands in the hands of a few owners who actually do not work, but they exploit the efforts, in this case it's the labor power of other people who are toilers in this case, who are obliged to produce to survive. That a few people own the means and they exploit the labor power of toilers who have to produce as a must to survive, as a must to survive. Here we see a second illustration that if the wealth of a society is 10 units, right? and the population of the society is 10 people, then each person's share in the society's wealth should be 10 divided by 10, which is one unit per person. But then the problem is in a society, we, want, we have people who want to possess more than others. So if you have, for example, two people or five people who own two units each, it means that other five people will have nothing in such a society. And this is what he calls exploitation and hoarding of wealth. That you can only hold wealth in a society at the expense of other people's needs, right? And and, and, and you see here, when you try to connect it to, to, to the deep economics, that you have two groups of people. You have two people who can hold wealth and do not spend, so they save, and people who are begging and are deprived. And so you see economists will tell you that in societies that have low incomes, there are low savings. Why? Because people barely have anything to save. But then societies that have high incomes, people actually have a lot to save. And we, we want to see this idea that hoarding is done at the expense of others. Let, let's look at um, the, the, the former president of, of Sudan, uh, Omar el-Bashir. Before he was hosted, um, euros, dollars, and Sudanese pounds I think totaling to more than 130 million dollars were actually found in his room and ironically the country was actually protesting for bread so you have one person who has 130 million dollars an equivalent to 130 million dollars or more in his bedroom under his pillow and yet a society is protesting to have food to eat so you can only hold wealth at the expense of other people's needs and he says this act is plunder it's theft and um of course, it's legitimized by the unjust and the exploitative rules that govern any society that follows such uh, such a system, right? And, and then he says, it makes a very interesting, because now you'd ask the question, what of entrepreneurs? And he says, the skillful and the industrious, in this case, we can assume even entrepreneurs, they have no right to take hold of the share of others as a result of their skill and industry. 
but they can benefit from these advantages. So if you produce something of your own accord, you have the right to save from it, right? And, and, and this understanding is going to be bettered by the illustration that we're going to give. The, the, the analogy of the wealth of society being like a store of supply. So a store whereby everyone goes to get their own share that is just enough to satisfy their, their material needs. So each one gets their own share and they decide what they want to do with it. You can either decide to consume it or save it after you've gone to the store of supply that's the wealth of society so if you are talented you probably um take an so if you're talented you probably now look at how much do i consume how much do i save and that's not a problem as long as you've taken your own share but then it says if you go back use and use your talents to take an additional amount from the store then you're a thief right you're encroaching on the public wealth you're taking more than you need and i think that's the problem with society right now so then I ask the question, we, we ask ourselves the question, does it mean that everyone in a socialist society therefore should have the same amount of wealth? And Gaddafi says no, that differences in the individual wealth can only be permissible uh, for those who render public service. So here we look at teachers, doctors, soldiers, medical professionals, they do not earn the same amount, right? Because they render different services to the society and these services can be judged um, using different uh, using different metrics, right? You can use different metrics to, to, to say maybe a teacher has to earn this amount, a doctor has to earn this amount, a soldier has to earn this amount. And this is mainly, the society allocates these um, payments or this share of wealth on the basis of, um, or an equivalent to the service that's being offered. I think um, we, we, we've mentioned that. And so Gaddafi, uh, it comes to some very interesting conclusions. He says, uh, the economic basis of the new universal theory, it just, it's just a means for a just distribution of a society's wealth. That we don't want other people to be slaves to other people by either being uh, wage workers or by being domestic servants, whom we are going to look at um, towards the end. So he says, you should be able to work for yourself to satisfy your own needs rather than exploiting others to work for you. So in, in order for you to satisfy your own needs at the expense of other people, right? And so what is the solution that it, prevent, it presents? The solution is private ownership to satisfy the needs, your own needs, without using other people. And or socialist ownership in which producers uh, are partners in production. So you either have private ownership to satisfy your own needs without using other people, or in a socialist society, you all own the means and produce as partners in production. So what are the important conclusions from here? He says, for a man to be happy, he must be free. And for him to be free, he must possess his own needs. For Africa, for Africans to be happy, we should be free. And for us to be free, we should be able to provide and sustain our own budgets. We should be able to provide and sustain our own developmental projects. Otherwise, we remain slaves to those who provide for us. And for me, he says that the material needs of man are basic, necessary, personal, things like food, things like housing, things like clothing, things like transport. And he says, so these must be within his private and sacred ownership. And for me, this reminds me of Sankara. What did Sankara say? Thomas Sankara said, whoever feeds you controls you. Right, whoever is putting food in your plate controls you. You go back home and you tell your parents, uh, you know, 
now me i'll go out on my own i do not want to listen to you i do not want to obey you you know what's going to happen your school fees is not going to be paid uh, you probably go to bed hungry right so whoever feeds you um controls you and for as long as um, um the, the west has our needs for as long as the west controls our needs they always dictate what laws we can or cannot pass in our parliament I remember in 2013 when Uganda passed the Anti-Homosexuality Act, right? We're not going to debate um, uh, the, uh, the merits or demerits of the act, but it was signed into law. And because we are, uh, we, we are mainly dependent on the U.S. for aid, they withdrew a bit of the aid. And then we now had to go back on that policy. So as long as the West controls our needs for capital, they always dictate what laws we can or cannot pass, what values we can embrace as a society, even what time we can sleep and how many hours we can work. And so Gaddafi says the purpose of a socialist society is the happiness of man, which can only be realized through material and spiritual freedom. Material freedom, material, your, your, your needs are met, and spiritually you're free to actually practice the way you'd want to. So he says attainment of such freedom can only be achieved through the ownership of our own needs. Otherwise, he says, we'll be in a state of anxiety, right? We'll be in a state, for example, if you live in someone's house, you are on tenterhooks every time. You know that any time he can actually come and chase you out and you'll be shelterless. Or if you are having someone's vehicle, you're using someone's vehicle, you know that he'll just come in the middle of the road and he'll take it away from you and you have nothing. So you're always in this state of, of, of tenterhooks. He says, for example, if you are moving on the streets with your costume that you borrowed from someone else, he has the right to come and claim it from you and leave you naked in the middle of the streets. And so that is not true freedom. And so... Um, now he goes back and he says that, and, and, and this is, these are very important ideas, dialectical, dia- dialectics and uh, just dialectical materialism. He says that the overturning of com- contemporary societies from one of wage workers to one of partners in production is an inevitable dialectical consequence as a result of contradictory economic theses. So... Um, when, when you try to follow Karl Marx's theory of di- dialectics, right, and I, th- I think he got this from Hegel, um, the, the German philosopher, that society is constantly changing. And what determines the rate at, uh, the rate at which society changes is actually these conflicting needs, these conflicting, uh, all these contradictory, what Gaddafi calls contradictory economic theses, that there are people who, who are, uh, are oppressed and there are people who are the oppressor. Look at the slave society, for example. And the, the theory of dialectic says that society is constantly changing, right? And, and the change is chiefly determined uh, by the economic condition of people and their material needs. And so uh, the, the changing of society from that of wage workers to partners, it says, it's going to be an inevitable consequence uh, of, of dialectical consequence, right? Because of this contradictory economic thesis and because of the injustices that exist. Uh, just a bit of uh, Marxism there. Uh, when you look at how society evolved, from example, from slave society to uh, feudal society, right? The slaves had to revolt because of the injustice. Uh, and how feudalism changed to capitalism. The, the, the serfs, in this case, had to revolt against the feudal lords because of a contradictory uh, economic situation and injustice. And um, th- th- that's why he thinks that in this current contemporary society, it's inevitable, uh, inevitably a, a consequence of dialectics that people, the workers will actually rise. Uh, towards the end he talks about trade unions and he says that trade unions actually have the power to cause the shift from a society of wage workers to partners he says that the objective of strikes can shift 
from wage increases from workers simply advocating for better working conditions and wage increases to actually a demand for a share in their production and this is what what would um, refer to as a socialist revolution that workers now say we want a share in the cars we're producing we want a share in the iPhones we're producing we want a share in the food that we're producing and he says that the final step uh, for the new socialist society then after that revolution is that money and profit should disappear but here we need to take care because he says that and, and we all know from economics that the main motivator for production why the world has managed to produce as much as we produce today is because a uh, profit is actually the main motivation for production so Gaddafi is not naive he says we should be very careful uh, when we are considering how we are going to abolish profit, right? The, the, the decision cannot be taken lightly because profit is the main driving economic force for production. So what does he say we need to do? Um, the abolition of profit must result from the development of socialist production to a point where the material needs of society are satisfied. So when we produce in this new socialist society, let profit motivate people so much. I think he mentioned something along the lines of profit being the undoing, that profit will undo itself, that we will produce so much with profit motivation that then profit will disappear because then we'll have enough um, to satisfy the needs of our of our society and then profit will not be necessary and money which is uh, our means of exchange will also not be necessary and how do we know that money will disappear because money is sort of our measure of the worth of commodities right uh, but according to marxist thinking it would be the efforts of the workers um, but if in a socialist society we do not have commodities commodities are produced for sale and exchange in a socialist society we have products and products um, are produced for consumption so when you're producing products and as opposed to commodities then we'll not have any need for money and inevitably no need for profit the last thing that uh, Gaddafi addresses in the economic basis is actually the the question of domestic servants right uh, he says that domestic servants, whether paid or unpaid, are a type of slave. And for me, when I think about domestic servants in Africa, I think about the several Africans who are in the Middle East, who are in Saudi Arabia, who have to work in all of these houses. Um, in, in, in Uganda, we have a lot of what they call labor export farms. And, and, and I think according to Gaddafi's perception, this would actually be, a, well, this is modern slavery. These are modern slave machines. These are actually habitats of slavery. So he says that domestic servants are a type of slave and uh, the problem with domestic servants is that the natural socialist law does not apply to them, right? Because they are rendering a service, they are not doing material production. And if they were doing material production, then we would demand that they have a share in their production. But if you are sweeping somebody's house, if you are uh, uh, taking care of someone's uh, clothes and doing their laundry, then you cannot have a share. In, in, in because you're not producing, you're providing a service. So because services cannot be divided into what? Into shares. And he says the solution to this is, is in a twofold aspect. One, you can either move out of the house and become a partner in material production in a society. And what does this mean? That means he brings another principle, DIY, do it yourself. That right? That a house should be served by its own residents. Um, and, 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 and lastly, that the second solution is that employee, um, instead of having domestic servants, we should have employees who are working 
um, and, and, and who can actually gain an improvement, who can be promoted and who can enjoy social and material safeguards like a normal employee in public service. So, because inevitably we'll have, we'll need people who, who, who can clean offices, uh, when other, who can clean hospitals, who can do all of these things, right? Um, and so they should be employees, they should not be servants, they should be employees who have sort of uh, material and uh, social uh, benefits to production. But yes, that, that is um, a, a brief um, sort of summary of Gaddafi's conception of the economic basis of, uh, of the third universal theory. I'll just pass it on to Marwan to take us through the social basis. Thank you, Olemo and uh, Michel, for, uh, for talking about the first part and second part of the Green Book. Uh, now it's my turn to talk about the third part, which is the social basis of the third universal theory. We'll also talk about how this theory sees society and how it is aligning with the previous political and economic uh, basis that have been discussed before. We'll go through the components of the society from the individual level to the national level, stating the rights and duties of all those comp components. So Gaddafi starts by stating that the social factor is the driving factor of human history, meaning that what builds nations is social relationships that build groups. It is necessary to mention that nations are not only built based on that, based on the social relationships, but it has other factors which can be either equal or less important to the social factor. Factors, factors such as the political structure, military, economic, or religious structures. Nations are founded on nationalism, which is built on the social and national relationships between citizens. The social relationship is, accordingly, the national relationship, and the national relationship is the social relationship. For the group is a nation, and the nation is a group. Their only difference is in numbers. So what is meant by group is, is, here is the group which is permanent by virtue of its own national relations. So with this national structure, this national spirit, each group has common social needs which must be collectively satisfied. There is no room for individualist needs. Now, as a result, nations whose nationalism is destroyed are subject to ruin because unity has been shaken. And explaining the factor of unity here, uh, the factor of unity in any group is a social factor. For this reason, a group struggle for its national unity, because its survival lies there in its unity. And Gaddafi compared groups and nations to how uh, gravity keeps uh, objects together, which is a law of nature. When the nucleus, or in the case of group, the unity essence is touched or broken, the whole object or the whole group falls apart. Now, there is only one, one rival to that social factor, which is the religious factor. The religious factor can bring groups apart to avoid that conflict, to avoid bringing groups uh, apart or uh, bringing nations apart, or the po possibility of creating that conflict. Each nation, Gaddafi suggests, each nation should have one religion. Harmony is manifested when those two factors, the social and the religious factors, cooperate. Mm -hmm. Then the first chapter of this, of this part is the family. For individuals, family matters more than the state. Family is their social umbrella and first social group that they are part of. And the state is just an artificial economic, political, and military system with which individuals have no concrete or tangible relations to. Mm -hmm. The flourishing society is that which the individual grows naturally within the family and the family grows naturally within the society. Also, the individual without a family has no value or social, social life. 
Then uh, Gaddafi moves to the tribe and he defines it as a tribe is a family which has grown through procreation. And the nation is a tribe which has grown through procreation, which makes it a big tribe. <laughs> What connects them is social bonds, as we have said before, social, social faction. And those social bonds get less strengthened from the level of the nation towards the family. And so are the benefits, advantages, and ideals that come with it. It is therefore of great importance for human society to maintain the cohesiveness of the family, the strength of social bonds of the tribe, the nation, and the world in order to benefit from those advantages, privileges, values, ideals, yielded by solidarity, cohesiveness, and unity, intimacy, and love of the family, the tribe, the nation, and humanity. Then talking about the merits of the tribe, uh, he gives another definition of the tribe as a social school where its members are brought up from childhood to absorb high ideals which are transformed into a behavior pattern for life. It is different from school education, which we will talk about in a minute. The tribe also provides social protection such as collective, uh, collective defense. Then on a, on a bigger level, he talks about the nation. He defines it as the political umbrella for individuals, as the family is the social umbrella for them. Since we said that the most important factor in nation building is nationalism, he gives the relation between nationalism and tribalism, since this latter is also present in the nation, but with less importance. However, its impact should be taken into consideration. He confirms that tribalism weakens nationalism because it strengthens the tribal allegiance, which weakens national loyalty. However, having national fanaticism is neither good. Yes, national fanaticism can be beneficial for the nation, but dangerous for humanity. So for him, the family, tribe, nations, and the world are very connected. If one sense of belonging to, to, to one of those groups gets stronger than the other, this will create conflict. In conclusion to the first section of this chapter, he moves to a more micro level. Gaddafi describes a powerful individual as one who respects themselves and is aware of their own responsibilities towards the family, the tribe, the nation, and the world. And it's important and useful to the family. Just as the family that has the same values is materially and socially useful to the tribe, and so on. The tribe is useful to the nation, and the nation is useful to humanity. In the second section, he starts by asking the question, why have some nations and civilizations been born and others destroyed? Are the reasons political or social or also social, specifically related to the third universal theory? In answering those questions, he says that the nation is a social structure whose bond is nationalism. Tribes' bond is tribalism, families' bond is family ties, and the world's bond is humanity. Then, besides the, those bonds, those social bonds, there is the political structure of the states, and this political structure is the one which constitutes the political map of the world, and how nations and empires uh, look like. The reason those nations evaporated is sometimes the political structure may not be consistent with the social structure. When it is consistent, it lasts and does not change, keeping the nation stable. And that is manifested in the example when, when in the face of external colonialism or internal conflict, it is national struggle, national unity, and national revival that saves the country from change. So when this political structure includes more than one nation, which is the case of empires, it collapses in the face of the emergence of na nationalistic movements. Those empires were formed of different states, because state is not only a social structure, but also a political one. A nation state exists as long as the political structure is consistent with, with its natural, natural social structure. To disregard the national bond of human groups and to establish a political system contradictory to, those, so, so, to that social reality, 
reality. It sets up a contemporary, temporary structure which will be shaken by any movement of the social factor of these groups. For example, the national movement of the nation in the case of empires. Then, uh, moving from the nation, the tribes, and the family, uh, Gaddafi goes to talk about the topic of women. He starts by clarifying that discrimination between men and women is a mere act of oppression without any justification. By condemning this discrimination and automatically emphasizing equality. But then he asks why was it that men and women created? If they are totally equal, why do both of them exist? Why societies are not formed only of men or only of, of women? He confirms that there is a natural difference, which brought natural laws for each one of them. And each one should be provided the necessary conditions for doing those roles, those natural laws. Those conditions are, are, are the rights they benefit from. Going to, into details for those natural laws, he describes how women's pregnancy serious, seriously reduces her natural activities until she delivers the baby, or, or in case of a miscarriage. As the man does not get pregnant, he does not suffer the feebleness of which woman suffers. Then comes breastfeeding for, uh, for women, which also reduces her output. Because she, she is directly responsible for another person whom she helps carry out their biological functions. Because of these characteristics, they should be distinct from each other and thus not absolutely equal. Each of them have a different role or function in life and for humanity. And those natural functions are neither voluntary or compulsory. They are essential and natural for human life to continue. In the case of going against those natural laws, or exactly to dispense with the natural role of women in maternity, for example, the nurseries replacing, replacing mothers, is a start in dispensing with the human society and transforming it into a biological society with an artificial way of life. Motherhood is the female's function, not the male's. Consequently, it is an unnatural to separate children from their mothers. And the mother who, ab who abandons her maternity contradicts her natural role in life. Therefore, to avoid that, she must be provided all conditions, rights, and most importantly, non-impression, so, so that she can do her natural law, role in, in, in the best way possible. A woman who needs work that renders her uh, unable to perform her natural duties is not free and is compelled to do that by need, uh, such as uh, Brother Olemo has, has mentioned before, for in need, freedom is latent. Any activity, work, education, or sport that leads to work unsuitably for her nature is unjust and cruel. And he gives the example for that in all societies nowadays, which look upon women as no, uh, no more than and I quote him here, uh, an article of merchandise. He said that the East regards, uh, regards her as a commodity for buying and selling, while the West does not recognize her femininity. Driving women to do man's work is an unjust aggression against femininity, which she is naturally provided for uh, a natural purpose essential to life. In conclusion, there is no difference in rights between them, but there is no absolute equality between their duties. In the following chapters, uh, Gaddafi goes briefly through, through them, but describes the principles of the third universally, uh, universal theory towards them. So he talks about minorities, and he says that there are two types of minorities. One belongs to the nation and contributes to its social framework, while the other has no nation and forms its own social, social framework. And they both deserve rights and should not be oppressed from the majority. Then talk about minorities. Gaddafi mentions the, uh, the topic of black people, and he starts by saying that black people will prevail in the world. 
He mentions the impact of the rage against the latest age of slavery by the white race, which will push black people all around the world, to, the world for progression. He also gives a historical perspective by mentioning how he says the yellow race has marched on the other continents and prevailed. In this case, I, I guess he's talking about the Mongolian uh, Empire. Then the white race did the same thing with colonialism, and automatically it is the turn for the black race to dominate. Then he moves to, to education and society. According to him, having an education with a constant and one curriculum put in textbooks and students sitting in desks is a violation against their freedom and form of, it is a form of dictatorship. He defines compulsory education as stratification of the masses because they are actually not learning anything besides what the states want them to learn. However, he's not saying that society should abolish education, but a society should provide all types of education, giving the people the freedom to choose any subjects they want, and not certain subjects that everyone should learn. Of course, except religion, because he says that each country has one religion, so the, 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 the education, religious education should be, should be the same and one. Then he moves to uh, talking about melodies and arts, and he, he said, uh, a quote, uh, man is still backward since he can't speak one common language. And uh, he suggests that, langu that language can be art and melody. Uh, he, he goes briefly into that chapter, and then he moves to the, to the following one, which, is, which has some interesting, interesting uh, uh, theories. So he talks about sports, horsemanship, and shows. He compares sports to prayer, so he brings the spiritual depth of doing a sport. And uh, talking from my own experience as a surfer, I can say that the, I, I can see... I can see the surfing more as a spiritual activity rather than a competitive one because of how I connected I feel to nature. Now he says that it is stupid for people to go to public spaces or stadiums to watch sports because no one goes to mosques or uh, churches to watch people praying. <laughs> because sports are performed for the individuals themselves. Then he concludes uh, that all the masses should have access to all kinds of sports, as no one will stop you from playing, no one should stop you from doing the sports you want. And that was the last, the last, last part of, of the third part uh, of, the, of the Green Book. This is how individuals, families, tribes, and nations, and the world would look like after a global revolution embracing the principles of the third universal theory. Yield the side to Comrade <laughs> Ulema. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Brother Maron. Uh, I think very important, very important. Just taking us over an hour, I think, to, to, to just get through the Green Book, but very important and very interesting ideas from there as well on the social basis for, for revolution. Uh, I think, yeah, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us on this episode, on this analysis of the Green Book, the first in many of many books that we're actually going to be analyzing on the show besides what's going to be produced. Yeah, remember that the point of these discussions is not to indoctrinate you into an ideology or a belief, uh, but to provide you with the tools that you can use um, to effectively analyze and understand why society is the way it is, and uh, so that you can also decide on more concrete steps to work towards a more just and a fair African society. So um, I'll just ask my comrades to say one last thing, just uh, a few parting shots, and then we'll close. I'll begin with... Uh, our sister Michelle. Um, in closing, I think that 
as Mawan um, and Olemu have mentioned, it is important to sort of be equipped because the world is sort of a, a political battle and you have soothsayers, um, you have... Um, you have a lot of things going on, so you need the knowledge um, and you need the understanding to be able to, to to discern, to be able to decipher a lot of the politics that is going on. But I think um, overall, politics is in everything that we do. You sleep politics, you eat politics, everything that you do is political. And I think using this understanding to analyze and explore the politics around you and the politics of everything that you do, I think will be important going forward and we encourage you to sort of do that um, in your day-to-day lives. Thank you, thank you, comrades. Um, yeah, just, yeah, just one word. Uh, as Olimo said, like in this podcast, we're, we're trying to give you the tools to, to understand or analyze politics. And that's like the Green Book is the way how Gaddafi uh, understood, understood or analyzed, analyzed politics. However, it's important to, to mention that uh, all these theories, they said in the Green Book, they were never applied in, in Libya under the leadership of Gaddafi. So it's important, yeah, just to know practicing or like the new practical way of, 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 of the, those theories is a different thing from just studying or under, understanding those theories. So yeah, that's that's what I want to say. I think I'll just pick off from the point at which um, uh, my comrade Marwan left off, and it's by a quote by Karl Marx that philosophers have only interpreted the world, but the point is to change it. At the beginning of the show, we talked about how deeply philosophical this book is. And I think as uh, a person who is listening, as a person who wants to change this continent, you need to understand that the primary thing that we need to aim towards is actually changing the continent. Thank you very much for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe and see you in the next episode.